0: Eternal God, we come to you today and we declare that you are indeed the great I Am. You're the creator of all, you're the Lord of all, and we have come today to worship you. We know that you're present with us. As we open our hearts to you, speak truth and peace and grace to each of us. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, uh, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship. Welcome to uh, all of you here this morning in worship, and uh, whether you are here every week or you're a guest today, we're glad to have you here and pray uh, God's grace upon uh, your life as we worship together. There are a few things that are in your bulletin to uh, mention to you. Tonight at 5 o'clock, we're gathering in the community room directly behind us for, uh, it's a time of fellowship, Uh, it's an annual event as it starts getting warm to have uh, some ice cream. And uh, this year we're getting ice cream from Addie's down the street. And so if you've had that, if nothing else, that should draw you in. Uh, great stuff. But uh, we don't really have an agenda other than just a chance to, uh, to visit with each other. If, you're, if you are relatively new to the church, maybe it's the first time you're here, we'd love to have you come, get a chance to meet some folks. And uh, just to connect together. And it's a come and go type event. We'll start at 5 and uh, just stay as long as you want to. But we hope you'll join us this evening uh, for this gathering. Uh, also, you see in your bulletin an uh, announcement about a potluck next Sunday uh, after the 11 o'clock service. And we invite you to be a part of that as we're going to gather. And we want to, part of the reason for this is to honor our uh, children's um, uh, and junior church leaders uh, who give sacrifice so much for us and help our children learn. And so we uh, invite you to be a part of this. You can see some things to bring uh, and that will be next Sunday. Uh, also, we want to thank everybody who helped out uh, taking care of the children to, at the Global Partners event this past week. Uh, we had a number of people who volunteered, especially the Costa Danner who oversaw the whole thing. And uh, to all of you who helped, thank you so much. If you donated things, thank you. Uh, we actually brought those back, so you want to pick those up today. I think some of them are in the foyer, CE foyer, or in room 105 across from the library. Uh, please take note of that. We are uh, always excited at this point in the year to recognize the 6th grade Sunday school class. For a number of years, the, this class has focused on learning catechism. Uh, it's, it's, it's a learning method of question and answer. And uh, throughout the year, the uh, students in the class learn about 120 questions and answers. Uh, all the things that uh, basic things that we believe as followers of Jesus. And so this morning, we want to honor them and uh, have some recognition for them. And uh, Mr. Harold Blue, who te- leads the class, as well as uh, Calvin and Paulette Shear and Heather Templeton, uh, are here this morning. And we want to uh, have uh, Harold uh, share about the class and give out the awards.
1: Thank you. Okay, as Pastor West mentioned, learning material by questions and answers is the idea of catechism. A lot of the things that we talk about are things that you as parents and earlier Sunday school teachers have already taught these young people. It's just a little different way of organizing things. And it's been an honor and a privilege for me again this year to teach this class. I want to say some words of thanks, first of all, first to the church, the body, for giving me this opportunity and this privilege. I want to thank the pastors, our Sunday school superintendents, and you as parents of these young people for giving me this privilege. I want to thank Dr. and Mrs. Shearer for their help this year again and trying to hide back here is Mrs. Templeton. The last couple of years we've had uh, a parent or two parents who volunteered to come in and sit in the class and and help. And uh, this year it was Mrs. Templeton. I'll, I'll have to tell you how I stuck my foot in my mouth the first Sunday of Sunday school last fall. To me, Mrs. Templeton... And her sister, Mrs. Cool, looked very much alike. And so I said to Sophia, oh, so you brought your auntie to keep track of you this year. (laughs) No, that's my mom. (laughs) Uh, I want to thank all of you parents of these young people for your work to help them Learn their questions this year. Especially interesting to me was two weeks ago, Pastor Wes and Pastor Cindy visited our class, and that Sunday our class size nearly tripled because many of the kids had two parents join them, and we appreciate that. We uh, the, the room was a little cozy. To say the least. Okay? But that tells me how interested our parents are in what their kids are being taught. Well, what do I say about this class? You know, I've been doing this for several years. And to try to come up with something special for each class sometimes makes a guy scratch his head a little bit. One thing that I've told these guys a number of times this year is that they have really made it fun for me to teach Sunday school. Okay? And I mean that in a good way. Okay? Uh, Sometimes you might think it depends on what your definition of fun is. Okay? But this group has really been a, a fun group to teach. They're a very social group in case you guys hadn't figured that out. But the thing that I liked best was when I said, okay, it's time to come, sit down, and have our lesson time. Then they were focused, they were engaged, they, they were eager to learn and asked a lot of good questions. Sometimes we use Jeopardy! to review what we've already learned, and I'd have one ready, and we wouldn't get to it for several weeks because they were asking questions. That's okay. That's okay. That's the time to teach is when questions are asked. I like this group because they're very hardworking. Okay? Okay very seldom did we have to take a bunch of time out of our Sunday school hour for them to work on their questions that they had gotten the week before. And that's a real encouragement to me. Something that always warms a teacher's heart, and if some of you have been teachers, you know this, is when a student will say, that makes more sense now. And I've had that happen several times this year, and that's been a real blessing to me. God's word and our faith are reasonable as much as we can understand. And it makes me happy when something makes sense. The last thing I want to say about the class as a whole is that I sense in each of them The desire to live for God. And I sense a caring spirit for others. These are things that we can encourage in Sunday school, but they are something that you as parents have taught and trained these young people to have that caring spirit. Thank you, parents. Be encouraged. I want to present a certificate to each of our students. Now, we had one student who joined us in April, and it would have been a little bit unreasonable to expect that she would have finished all 125 questions. But while she was with us, she was very much a part of our class. So, Claire Wilkins? All right. Now, the rest of these young people have finished all of their questions for the year. There's no rhyme or reason, just how the certificates were in my bag, okay? All right, Emma Cole. Zoe Beardsley will Roski Chris Haecker Sophia Templeton Jaden Muker Carter Sisson Anna Tanner. Warren Taraka. Nicole Taraka. And we have one more. Lexi Poole, but her family is out of town this weekend for a wedding, I understand, in New Hampshire, I think. Something like that. Okay, so...
0: I want to thank uh, Harold for leading this class as he said he's done this for a number of years and just does a great job I, I, I often walk by that classroom during the week and it's not unusual to see notes written on the blackboard Mr. Blue we love you we miss you and uh, things like that are just the, the connection that the students have. I want to just take a minute and to pray for this class, that the things that they've learned would stay with them and really guide them in the years to come. Father, thank you so much for every student here before us. Thank you that you have created them, you love them. Thank you for the ability you've given them to learn and to understand. We pray that they will take these things that they've learned, that they will be more than just... Uh, momentary pieces of information but that you will use them through your word to shape their lives to be followers of you. We pray that your protective hand will be upon each of them and that they will go forth from this class to learn more and continue to grow and to have hearts yearning for you in all that they do throughout all of their lives. We ask for your grace upon them And we give them to you. We thank you for them. And pray this through Christ. Amen.
1: I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has blessed us with.
0: We're spend some time praying together, and uh, as we do, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, I invite you to join me. I did want to mention that for quite some time, we have been praying for Crystal Blake, and if you're here, you see her name in the bulletin, and Crystal has come back from the Czech Republic. Uh, she's been battling cancer for a number of years and was here at the Global Partners uh, gathering this week and uh, began to get sick again, and she's been in the Olean hospital most of this week. It looks like she's coming back here staying at the inn, and uh, it seems as though her days are drawing close to an end, and so many of her family members are are here in Houghton, and uh, we want to especially remember Crystal and her family in our prayers this morning. If you'd like to use the altar rail, please come and join me. Gracious Father, we want to thank you for your presence here with us in our worship today. Thank you for all of your blessings, all of the amazing things you do in our lives. This morning we come and we bring to you the burdens and the concerns of our lives and of our world. Father, today some of us are feeling the weight of sorrow and a sense of loss we ask for your comforting presence on our hearts. Some of us are burdened by illness and, and pain and suffering. These bodies, which are amazing miracles of your creation, need your healing grace. This morning we think especially and pray especially for Blanche, Blanche Weaver, Luke Heisinger, Wade Marsh, Sheldon Emerson, Doug Bogdan, Barbara Engel. Bob Joe Bear, Laurel Bucher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, Crystal Blake. We ask for your healing grace on each one. Father, we pray for our relationships. Forgive us for the many times that our self-centeredness has led to harming each other. Help us more and more to be committed to serving each other, forgiving each other, blessing each other, loving each other. For some, this is a summer of transition. Some moving on to other places, others moving here from other places. Some of the transitions are in our families and in our relationships. We pray you'd give us peace in the midst of anxiety and uncertainty. Father, we think of our world beyond us, even our county beyond us. We pray this morning for the Belmont United Methodist Church and Pastor Hurd. We ask that you would bless this church and their witness and their lives for you. And we pray that you would bless them through your spirit. We thank you for the good things that took place in the Global Partners gathering this week here on Houghton College campus. And today, as, as they join delegates and people from around the Wesleyan Church, around the world, as we beginning of General Conference in Buffalo, we pray, Father, that you will be glorified in today's activities and throughout the week of meetings and gatherings and inspiration. We pray, Father, that you will work miraculously in this conference As we make decisions about the direction of our denomination, be glorified in all of it. And Father, we think of our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer persecution. We're reminded that the Apostle Paul was once an enemy of the church, but through the witness of your spirit and of your people, his life was changed. And we pray this morning, not just for those who are persecuted, but for those who are persecuting them. We pray, Father, that that you would so reveal yourself through your children, that those whose plans are to injure and harm the body of Christ would be changed by your Holy Spirit and by the witness of your people. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We offer all of our prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ
2: After the scripture, children can be dismissed to children's church. Please stand for the reading of the scripture. From Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone is turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion! When God restores his people, let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. It's the word of the Lord.
0: rhetorical question. Make that clear right up front. Who comes to your mind when you hear the word fool? I don't want anybody shouting out names. (laughs) Who comes to your mind when you think of the word, when you hear the word fool? Uh, It might be someone that um, it might be, you might think of them this way because of uh, the clothes they wear music they listen to, maybe the foods that they eat or don't eat, maybe it's because of their political views, maybe their, maybe their theological perspective. I suspect that for most of us, what would define the person in our minds when we think about a fool is that they think of things in a way that's different than the way we think about them. And so when we we think of them, because why would you think that way? Why would you do that? Why would that be your perspective? And that leads us to view them, even if we don't say the words, but to view them as people who are foolish. And maybe that's why Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount that we shouldn't call people fools. Because in many ways it belies the selfishness in our own hearts. And that's what's so surprising to me. When we open up Psalm 53, one of the first things David says is to talk to us about fools. Now, this psalm is interesting in the sense that it is, I think, the only psalm that we have in the, out of the 150, which is a fairly limited number of, well, I'm sure, all that were written. It's the only one that is repeated almost verbatim. Psalm 53 is almost exactly, with just a few exceptions, exactly the same as Psalm 14. And in the Hebrew language, they don't have the ability, as we do with our computers, to bold print things or to italicize things. And so one of the ways in which you emphasize the importance of something is to repeat it. And so when you read through the Old Testament particularly, you may read through it at times and think, why do they keep saying the same thing over again? That's why. They want to emphasize that point, which the reason you emphasize it is because they're trying to help us understand everything is important. But this is super important. And it says something to us about the message of Psalm 53 of how significant it is for us to understand. And David begins by saying, only fools say in their hearts there is no God. They're corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. So, what does it mean to be a fool? How does David define that? Fools are, are not people who are ignorant of the truth. Fools are people who should know the truth and reject it. When you read the book of Proverbs, it has a lot to say about people who are wise and people who are foolish. And, and there's also a third group of people that, in some translations, are called the simple. And the simple are basically people who just don't know. And God is pretty sympathetic and patient with them. But the fools are people who do know and reject it anyway. And God is far less tolerant, far less patient with these people. And when you boil it down, and he talks about how they are corrupt. He talks about in verse 4 how they devour uh, the people who are vulnerable and innocent and weak. What you're really finding, people who are foolish are people who live as if God doesn't exist. Or if they believe God exists, they don't think God cares. They live in such a way that it doesn't matter what I do because God isn't going to do anything about it anyway. God doesn't exist or God doesn't care, so I can do whatever I want. And if you believe that God doesn't exist, and he says it's in their hearts they say this. These aren't people who are going around saying uh, that God doesn't exist and God doesn't care. But in their hearts they're saying that. And how do we know they're saying it in their hearts? Because of how they're living. And David specifically says it's about how they're treating other people. These are people who are foolish. Foolish. Now, there's a good chance that this psalm is connected to an incident in 1 Samuel 25. Psalm 52 is connected to an incident in David's life, and Psalm 54 is connected to an incident in David's life. We don't get that kind of information at the beginning of Psalm 53, but there is probably a a good good chance that it's connected to an incident in in 1 Samuel 25 where David and his men are on the run from Saul, and they're hungry, and they need some provisions, and they discover that a man named Nabal, who has... 3,000 uh, sheep and thousands of goats, and he's, got, he's very wealthy, he has lots of animals, and it's sheep shearing time. And which means that they, are, they have a lot of people involved, it means they've cooked, they're cooking a lot of food, that means they have a lot of provisions. And so David sends some messengers to Nabal and says, look, when your men were over here a while back, we protected them. We kept track of them. We didn't let anyone take any of their stuff. So now we're wondering if you might be able to share some of your provisions with us. And so the messengers go to Nabal, and Nabal's response is What do I care about David? Why would I feed his people? Why do I care about this this renegade? He's on his own, I'm not giving him anything. And so these guys, messengers, go back to David and tell him what Nabal said. And David's response is, get your swords, guys. We're going to go take these guys out. And Nabal's wife finds out about what he said. And he comes back. She comes. She gathers a whole bunch of food, sends it to David and follows that up and goes before David and says, look, this is all my fault. And she says, my husband is well-named. His name is Nabal. He's a fool. Because the word Nabal actually means fool. And it's the exact same Hebrew word that's here in Psalm 53 that's translated fool. And I'm thinking to myself that David is looking at that incident and seeing it as an example of people who are foolish. They know better. They ought to be helping people. This man is wealthy beyond his dreams, and he is unwilling to help people in need, particularly David. They're of the same tribe. They're both from the tribe of Judah. They're both connected by family, and he won't help him. And David says, this is is what it means to be a fool. Now, I suspect as David's telling the psalm, as the people of Israel are singing this psalm in worship, they listen to this, they're singing this first verse, and they're going, yeah, I know people just like that. I know people who are foolish, I know those people, and they're sort of feeling the sense of, yeah, these these are the people who are idiots, they're foolish, God, go get them. And then we come to verses 2 and 3. And David sort of lowers the boom on them, because he writes in verses 2 and 3, God looks down from the heaven on the entire human race, not just the people that are considered foolish, but the whole human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God, but no, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Now, I suspect there's a little hyperbole in what David writes, a little poetic poetic license here. But what David is saying is, look, before you start getting all prideful, and you start feeling all self-righteous. God's looking at the earth and saying, man, there's not a lot here to work with. And the reality is, every one of us is susceptible to being tempted to think like fools. Every one of us is tempted to live our lives in such a way that if people really stopped and thought about it, they would look at us and think, you know, I'm not sure they believe that God exists. I'm not sure they believe that God cares. You go back to that story in 1 Samuel 25, David and his men are getting their their weapons together, and then they meet Abigail, and she gives him the food, and she apologizes for Nabal, And David says this. He responds by saying to them, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. I think this is one of the primary reasons why David is connecting this psalm to that incident. Because all of a sudden, it dawns on David, I'm just as foolish as Nabal. I'm doing to him exactly what he was going to do to me. And David was... Filled with self-righteousness. David was filled with pride. How in the world could he do this to us? I think he felt like he was losing face. And I've got to stand up and make sure this guy understands who I am. I mean, after all, I've been anointed to be the king. And God sends Abigail to, to uh, straighten out David, to shock him into realizing, David, no, you are just as susceptible to doing foolish things as anybody else. For David to go and to wreak vengeance upon Nabal and his entire household, which is what David was going to do, was to live as if God doesn't exist. That God can't take care of Nabal himself. That God doesn't care how you treat people. And David makes it clear, I was going to take vengeance into my own hands. And you and I are continually tempted to do that. We may not be tempted to take the life of other people, but we are tempted to live in such a way that it appears that God can't handle the situations of our lives. God can't handle the situations of our world, and so we've got to take matters into our own hands. Or maybe it's God doesn't really care what we do because our cause is just. Our purpose is right. The end that we want to get to is worth it. And so whatever means we need to get to that end is okay because what we're doing is the right thing. It's how the world operates. I mean, it's basically the the whole political system, not just in America, but probably around the world. You have people who get involved in politics because they want to do good. Because they want to make the, the world, their country, a better place. And their advisors say to them, but you know, the only way you can do that is to get elected. And the only way you can get elected is to stretch the truth, tell some lies, promise things that you know you'll never be able to do. And I know that it doesn't feel right to you, but it's okay because it's getting you to the end to be able to do good things. And as the church, we fall into the same trap sometimes. As Christians, we fall into the same trap sometimes because we believe our cause is right and just, so it's okay. It doesn't matter if we leave a wake of human carnage behind us. We're getting to the end that's good. And David is trying to help us understand that's not the way the kingdom of God works. God cares not just about the end, but the whole process of getting to the end and how we treat people. Because any other alternative is living as if we don't really think God cares. And he does. It's what separates him from all the gods of all the other peoples that they worship. Is that God is not just concerned about the end. He is concerned about what's going on in our hearts. What's going on in the minds and the spirits of his people in getting toward that end. And that's why... When God looks down at the earth, David tells us what he's looking for. He's looking for people who are wise. And then he defines that and says he's looking for people who seek God. He's looking for people who think about God. He's looking for people who are living their lives in such a way that they believe God exists and that they believe that God cares. And that begins in verse 4 where he says these are people who pray to God. These are people who call on God. These are people who acknowledge their need for God. That's where it always begins. If, if you want to, if we, we want to, to undermine our temptation to pride and self-righteousness, we start with acknowledging our need for God. Because it it means we're acknowledging we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not righteous enough, we're not holy enough to to live the way that we should live. We need God. It's the first step in every 12-step program. You walk in the room, you say, hi, I'm Wes, I'm a fool. No comments from you. That's where it starts. But the thing is, you don't just say that the first time you meet. Every time you come back to a meeting, you stand up to say something, you introduce yourself, I'm Wes, I'm a fool. Every time there's an acknowledgement of the need for something else in our lives. And as Christians, we never outgrow the need for God. In fact, I would say one of the most, one of the clearest definitions of what it means to be holy is to live our lives in such a way that it's clear we can't do anything without God. ...that we acknowledge every day, every moment of every day, I need God. It's one of the things Jesus is continually combating in in the Gospels. There's a story in Mark chapter 2 where he calls Matthew to be a follower of his... ...which is pretty amazing because Matthew's a tax collector... ...and tax collectors are despised in that culture. And it says a little later, Matthew throws a dinner party... ...and he throws a dinner party for all of his tax collector friends... So, and, and other, what the scripture calls sinners. And the Pharisees observe what's going on as Jesus is eating with all of these people who are considered outcasts among the religious elite. And they say to Jesus' disciples, why does your master eat with this scum? And that's one of the translations, with this scum. And Jesus overhears that and turns to them and says, look, it's not healthy people who need a doctor, it's sick people. And I have come for people who recognize that they need help. And these guys recognize they need help. And the implication is you ought to recognize that too. And the problem with you is you don't. And once we acknowledge that we need God, that will almost invariably lead us to a different kind of, a different way of thinking about how we treat people. Because seeking God is not just what's in our hearts, it's not just something we think about, it is something we do. And just as fools say there's no God in their hearts and so they treat people with contempt and take advantage of people... People who are wise say in their hearts, I can't live without God. And that leads them to treat people the way God does. Because their hearts are open to God. And God is changing them and working in them. And when that happens, you cannot help but treat people the way Jesus does. Instead of taking advantage of people, we sacrifice for people. Instead of thinking, I've got to get to the end and it doesn't matter how I get there, we start thinking about the people right in front of us. And we're less concerned about the end than we are God in our lives today, this moment, this circumstance, this person. And when you live that way, it's funny how all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I think I've gotten to the end that I was hoping to get to. Because I'm thinking like Christ. What's hard in all this is that when you look around the world, fools have a tendency to look like they're pretty successful. I mean the people who are who live their lives as if there is no god as if god doesn't care have a tendency to be the ones with the power and the influence they're the ones who, who seem to be able to control things and it's one of the reasons why this whole thing frustrates us so much and I think it's one of the reasons why david feels the need to write this psalm and it's recorded twice in the in the in the psalms because it is a problem And the problem with the fools looking successful is that other people are going, that must be the way you do it. So I'll do things the way they do. But it's also discouraging. When you're living your life trying to do what Christ does, when you're living your life trying to, to think the way God thinks, and it feels like you're continually losing, and the people who are doing the opposite seem to be winning, it's discouraging. You look around the world today, and in the places, so many countries of the world... If you're a follower of Christ, you are oppressed and persecuted and your life is in danger every moment. And the people who reject God and reject Christ seem to have all the power and the influence. And it's discouraging. But that's why David tacks on verses 5 and 6. And he says, I know it's discouraging, I know, it does, I know it looks bad, but let me just remind you, the day is coming when God's going to turn the tables on the fools. And the people who have terrorized my people are going to be terrorized. The people who have devoured my people are going to be devoured. Because our God does care and our God is a God of justice. This is not vengeance that God is saying, you people are really irritating me and so I'm going to come get you. This is simply a matter of, look, you guys know. You understand what I want. You know what I'm looking for. You know what it means to follow me and you have just made the choice to reject me. And there are consequences to that. It's what we see with the religious elite in the in the Gospels. There are consequences to their behavior for rejecting Jesus. But there's the other side of the coin as well. David begins verse 6 and says, Oh, if, if someone would come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem to restore my people. And you would think the, the next word would be, and David's saying, here I am. I've come to rescue my people. I'm the king. God's anointed me to be the rescuer. Here I am. But he doesn't say that. He says, when God restores his people. Because David knows he can't do that. David recognizes that the only means of restoring people who are discouraged and troubled and burdened and oppressed is God. And he says, look, the day is coming. I know you don't see it now. I know it looks hard now. I know that it it doesn't look like it's happening now. But be encouraged. God is going to restore you to joyful flourishing. He is going to restore your life because you have lived your life in a way that that tells people He is who He says He is. And He does what He says He does. And just as God is going to bring justice upon those who reject Him, even though they know better, He's going to bring joyful flourishing and restoration and redemption to people who choose Him. And ultimately, it becomes a matter of trust. Often we don't see it. Often we wrestle with it and we we cry out to God, how long, O Lord, and what are you going to do and when are you going to do it? And David, like every other author of scripture says, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm confident the day is coming. Trust him. And that's really the invitation of this table. We come to this table this morning acknowledging our need for God. We come acknowledging that we are sinners in need of God's grace. And this is a table that offers grace. But we also come this morning acknowledging that because of Christ, the day is coming when God is going to set things to right. When God is going to bring restoration and rejoicing and celebration to his people. And so, even as we come in a spirit of lament about our sins, we also come in a spirit of celebration because of what God has done. So, as you think about your life today, as you think about God's people around the world today, do you sense God prompting you about something, a circumstance, an issue? And he's saying to you, I know you don't understand. I know it looks like it doesn't make sense. But will you trust me? And find in that trust, joy, peace, grace. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of Jesus. And we pray that you would give us grace to see our need of you and to trust you and to declare with how we live our lives that you are good and merciful and you are trustworthy. We pray this morning you pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. May it be food to our souls of forgiveness and of celebration. We ask this through Christ. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to his Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. And again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven. And gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. just means to dip in. And as you're released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. And the altar rails always open if you would like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we do have trays of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your robe is released. and I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you need those, just let me know as you come to the front. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time that you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with a desire in your heart to follow Christ and to live in His grace and to receive His grace and come, Receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
3: Thy strength indeed is small, child.
0: Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.